Good morning. Welcome to Theological Equipping Class. Let me pray for us and we will begin. Father, we thank you that 2,000 years down the line of your church, you have kept your promises, you have kept your church, your son's words that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, have proven to continue to be true. And Father, we thank you most of all that we are, though we have a lot more complexities down the line, a lot more things to argue about because we have more time to figure out things to argue about. We also have, as we'll see today, such uh, great shoulders that we stand on. There's so many incredible men and women who have dedicated their lives to you, some long lives, some short lives, and you've preserved a lot of their writings that are nowhere near the wonder and the glory of your perfect scriptures, but do give us an insight uh, into the wonders of your heart and do disciple us and mold us to look more like your son. And so I pray, even as I kind of autobiographically reflect on the, the men and women of church history that have done that with me, that we would be a people uh, who mine the treasures of history, not because we just love history or not just because we like reading biographies or any of those things that aren't bad things, but because we so desperately want to see the king in his beauty. We want to see you, and we want to learn from men and women that have spent their lives mining the treasures of who you are, that we might uh, enjoy the spoils, Lord. So we pray that you would just do that, that we would uh, see wonders of you through listening to our brothers and sisters who have gone to be with you. Pray that in your son's name. Amen. Well, good morning. We're continuing our semester this morning on uh, Parkway's new mission statement, which is, repeat it again, the Parkway Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ who delight in him, display his love to one another, and declare him to the world. And so this mission, this, uh, this theological equipping, we've gone through those three Ds, delight, display, declare. Delight, primarily how we relate to our God. We glorify him by enjoying him forever, by delighting in him. Uh, display his love, that's how we relate to one another as a church. We display his love to one another. And how do we relate to the world? We declare Jesus to the world. So we've been walking through different teachings, uh, focusing on one of those three things each time. And today we get to our final delight. We looked last week at how to declare, how to engage in world missions. And then today our final delight, how to delight with the saints of the past. Okay, how to delight with the saints of the past. And I use that word saints in the normal biblical way, not in the Roman Catholic way, not as some sort of varsity level uh, ranking of Christian, but in the same way that Paul would write to the saints of Ephesus or to the saints at Colossae or the saints at Thessalonica, just past Christians who have been made righteous by the righteousness of our beloved Savior. Okay, so similar to how I prayed, we have 2,000 years of men and women who have spent their lives devoted to the Lord, searching the wonders of our infinite God, and they wrote it down, either in a diary or in a letter or recorded sermons or in books or in theological controversies. And we have uh, those survived works 2,000 years later. They've made it through history, and history has been like a good refiner. C.S. Lewis talks about uh, church history being a very good refiner. All the bad books, we just don't reprint. And all the good books, we must reprint, right? So if you have a book that was written thousands of years ago, or a thousand years ago, or hundreds of years ago, it's gone through hundreds of years of testing. And all the bad ones have been tested and not good enough to keep reprinting, and all the, the good ones have been deemed good enough to make it to us, okay? So we, have, we, we know these old dead guys, in a sense, because their works have survived, Okay, and so I want to look at a couple of people who have influenced me today. First, I'm going to make a case of why do this. It's different than studying the Bible, right? Something that's absolutely essential to your Christian life. Why do we do this? I'm going to look kind of autobiographically of, of old dead guys who have influenced me just because I don't know how else to do this. Uh, and then we'll look at how. How do you spend time? How do you hang out with dead people, right? Not in the sixth sense sort of way, but in a good, glorious, they teach you to be more like Jesus, sort of way. Okay, so let's do that. That'll be our three things. How do we, why learn from dead saints 
look at my dead influences. We'll look at four. Uh, I had C.S. Lewis in there, and then this teaching was too long, so I cut him very painfully. So I'll talk to you about C.S. Lewis later. And then how do we actually do that? Okay, so biblical foundations. Let's look at why we do this first. You might think, again, this is so different. We've looked at how to study the Bible, how to pray the Bible, how to meditate on the Bible. We've looked at how to commune with God through the beauties of creation. But even in that teaching, we did it through the scriptures, right? You look at the sun, which, or, you know, you, you glance at the sun. Don't stare at the sun. We got that question during Q&A. Or you look at clouds or whatever, and then you hear the scriptures in your mind say, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, right? So it's still very rooted in the scriptures. So what's all this church history stuff? Okay, aren't we kind of departing? Aren't we kind of getting into the dangerous Roman Catholic tradition area? Well, let me just show you uh, my, my biblical conviction for doing this in Philippians 3. Brothers, this is Paul speaking to the Philippians Brothers, join in imitating me, Paul, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Okay, so Paul clearly talking about people in their day, which we do that. We talked about that in, in uh, how to disciple one another. You will hang out with living people and they will rub off on you. There's this inevitability of influence, but it's also true, that is also true of dead people, dead guys that you read and spend time with. They will rub off on you. The ways that they have uh, just soaked in the glories of Jesus will just kind of radiate through their works and will be absorbed into you. So keep your eyes, brothers and sisters, not just on one another as you follow Jesus, but keep your eyes on John Owen and Charles Spurgeon and Augustine, and Athanasius, and C.S. Lewis, and all the men and women of church history who want to keep your eyes on Jesus as you look to their example and see more of him in the same way we would look at Paul, another old dead guy whose example we look at, and see how we follow him as he follows Christ, okay? So though they are dead, they still speak. Martin Luther famously said, some of my best friends are dead ones. And he was talking about this. He loved reading the works of church history. He loved reading Augustine, right? uh, Calvin's writings, Luther's writings are filled with the early church fathers because they were so uh, in love with reading them and seeing how they painted just the glories of God, okay? So again, in the same way that you hang out, if you hang out with someone who's really encouraging, even if they don't sit you down and give you a lesson on encouragement, you just are hanging out with them and watching them encourage people, you will, it will almost be impossible not to, just start encouraging people. If you hang out with people who gossip and just are always kind of looking for the negative, you will, it will be impossible not to, become far more negative. There is an inevitability of influence with the people you hang out with in your life, but it's also true of people in church history as well. So I want to, as I kind of look at these different people who have influenced me, I'll just let you know, you pluck any of these four guys from my life, a different person preaches to you every Sunday. A wildly different human being preaches to you every Sunday. If you pluck Raven Hill from my life, if I'd never had Raven Hill, or I never had Athanasius, or I never had McShane, or I never had, who else do I have? And here's my second guy, <laughs> David Brainerd. If I didn't have Brainerd, a different human would preach to you. And I'll try and show you what I mean by that. But I, I want you, this isn't just a Jared likes church history, so I really want you to like what I like sort of teaching. I want you so badly to see how wonderful your God is. And you have so many riches before you from the saints of history saying, here is how wonderful your God is. Okay, does that make sense? My, my kind of motivations here. So that's my biblical kind of roots and my motivations of why I want you hanging out with dead people. And then one more thing that C.S. Lewis, I've got a long quote there. Hanging out with dead men of the past, dead women of the past, makes you such a better thinker, makes your mind so much clearer than uh, if you were to just read contemporary authors. So as constant false narratives are coming to us and our society is constantly preaching false gospels, you will be able to discern them and see truth so much better by reading men who lived 300 years ago. Okay, here's what C.S. Lewis said. He actually wrote this in his foreword to uh, one of Athanasius's works on the Incarnation. Every age has its own outlook. It is 
especially good at seeing certain truths and especially liable to certain mistakes. We all, therefore, need books that will correct the characteristic mistakes of our own period, and that means old books. All contemporary writers share, the same, share to some extent the same contemporary outlook. We may be sure that the characteristic blindness of the 20th century, when he's writing this, the blindness about which future generations will ask, how could they have thought that? That blindness lies where we have never suspected it and concerns something about which there is untroubled agreement between Hitler and President Roosevelt. None of us can fully escape this blindness, but we shall certainly increase it and weaken our guard against it if we read only modern books. Where they are true, they will give us truths which we have half knew already. Where they are false, they will aggravate the error with which we are already dangerously ill. The only medicine to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our mind. And this can be done only by reading old books. You see what he's saying? How many of you think of your grandparents and think, how could they have all thought that? And your great-grandparents. Everyone in this room knows the older people, your parents, your grandparents. You've had those moments. You're like, gosh, how could they have been that blind? And they might, if you ask them about it, say something like, it was just our time. And they're right. And you will have grandkids and great-grandkids who say that about you. How in the world could they have all believed that? We hold those views right now, and we're blind to it. In the same way we think that about our grandparents, and Lewis is saying, Hitler, President Roosevelt, agree on things that they're both blind to because they're of the same generation. And the only way we see clearer is if we get back in the past to people of different centuries who just have a radically different outlook on life. And he goes on to say, if we could read the future books, that would help us in the same way we just can't get at future written books, obviously, because they're in the future. So hanging out with dead men, ironically, makes us clear thinkers for today. Okay, so that's, that's my why behind this. If you hang out with John Newton, he will help you see pastoral problems, right? How to meet someone who's wrestling with something far better than John Piper, because I and Piper have the same blind spots that Newton doesn't have, because he's... 300 years older than us. See that? Okay, so that's my why. Now let's go through just my, <laughs> my autobiographical uh, people who have influenced me. I've got four. Again, Leonard Ravenhill, David Brainerd, uh, Athanasius, and Robert Murray McShane. They're all over the church history scale. There's many, many more I could have added in here. I purposefully didn't have Calvin. I purposely didn't have Spurgeon or Edwards or Lewis. I purposely cut the usual suspects uh, so that you just don't think, I'll study the Reformers and the Puritans and Augustine, and then I'll do this. I want to show you just the breadth of treasures that there are in uh, the history of our church. And again, my, my, my heart here is I want people to mold you to look more like Jesus. Though Jesus isn't one of these four, every one of these four would say, look at Jesus, right? So that's my heart motivation, okay? So let's start with Leonard Ravenhill. Look how fancy I've gotten in your notes. I've gotten little tiny pictures of these people. Okay? Leonard Ravenhill, uh, he was a very, very passionate, very fiery uh, English evangelist or evangelical preacher and author in the 20th century. He died in the early 90s, two years before I was born. He's actually buried in Tyler, Texas, though he's a Brit. He ministered most of his life in America. He was uh, mentored by A.W. Tozer, if you know, uh, famous author A.W. Tozer. He ministered with uh, David Wilkerson, author of The Cross and The Switchblade and Teen Challenge for a long time, and mentored uh, Keith Green, who's a very uh, well-known musician who tragically died in a plane uh, crash at a very young age. And so he was a man who just, quite frankly, lived in light of eternity. There was such a, such a closeness to the judgment seat with this man that came out in his preaching that it was just, he was almost like a modern-day prophet, uh, and particularly in America where he saw what he perceived to be the cheapening of the gospel. He saw the seeker-friendly movement on the rise. He saw church in particular start uh, being motivated towards growth and size and programs and what will get people in the doors, what will, what will bring what he perceived to be worldly success and such a drift away from the gospel and such a drift away from the glories of God and such a drift away from holiness in our lives 
where the, the bar was being set so low for Christians, where you just kind of pray the sinner's prayer and then keep doing whatever you want. And there's no cost of discipleship ever mentioned. It's just, do you want to go to heaven or do you want to go to hell? Who would choose hell when those are your two options? Heaven, pray this prayer, and then you're done. Eternal, eternal security is good. Keep pursuing the American dream. He saw that, and he hated it with all of his might. And he rarely preached against the wickedness of the world. He often preached about the compromise of the church. A couple quotes there. There's no place more wonderful than the church of Jesus Christ when the Spirit of God is moving there and no place more boring when he isn't there. The church is either supernatural or superficial. There's no middle ground. And so that was just him. He had no, no gray area in his life. You were on fire for Jesus or you were on fire for the devil. There was no in-between. And he had very, very strong thoughts uh, about what fruit ought to look like in the believer's life. And so I met him right when I became a Christian. He was easily the biggest influence on the first two years of my Christian life. Whenever uh, my wife and I were in Australia, and in the Bible school there, it was often said among the students, if you walked by Jared's room, you could hear Ravenhill screaming because there was always like some YouTube going or something like that of Ravenhill screaming. Uh, and so he was such a, uh, a weird comfort to me because he put language to what I was seeing. I grew up here in the Bible Belt, and when I became a Christian, I genuinely did not know what was happening in my own heart. I thought, I've heard all this stuff my whole life, and now I can't sleep at night because Jesus is so glorious. So what has happened? And if something that radical has happened in me, what's going on with everybody else that I know that is claiming the same Christianity but seems to be living as if God doesn't exist? Their retirement is in view. Their dreams seem unaltered. It just seems like they're living like everybody else. Pursue what you want. Pursue your own dreams. And God's a nice extra. At best, he's you know, kind of a moral overlay on your life. And Ravenhill kind of took me and put language to the frustration I was feeling with that. So that was the first thing he taught me, I have there, to live in light of eternity. That, as James would say, this life is a vapor, it's a mist, it's gone like this, and then you have eternity with God. Do you really think the God of the universe who sent his son to take eternal wrath for you says, pray this prayer and then keep doing whatever you want and then we'll spend eternity together? Or do you think he says, pick up your cross and follow me? And so he, he taught me the Christian life is not just check the boxes that make your eternity good, and then do whatever you want. Rather, it's radically following this Savior who lived a life of incredible suffering, and they're never going to treat you any better than they treated him. So he put language to that. The second thing is he taught me prayer. He didn't teach me how to pray. It would be a while till I learned really how to pray. We've talked about that with praying the Bible and things like that. But he just taught me the glories of prayer. It went from being a just checkbox spiritual discipline to something that I ought to devote my life to. He just personally would pray, it was said, around six hours a day. Uh, it would be normal for him to spend the night praying, to, to forego sleep and pray. Here's a very famous quote from his book, Why Revival Tarries. No man is greater than his prayer life. The pastor who is not praying is playing. The people who are not praying are straying. We have many organizers, few agonizers, many players and payers, few prayers, many singers, few clingers, lots of pastors, few wrestlers, meaning wrestling in prayer, many fears, few tears, much fashion, little passion, many interviewers, few intercessors, many writers, but few fighters, failing here, we fail everywhere. And so again, I mean, I grew up and became a Christian in just celebrity Christian culture. We just got the next mega, mega church pastor who's just a great charismatic speecher, uh, preacher, and that's why people follow him. He's fun to listen to. And so early on, he grabbed me and said, the public life is nothing compared to the private life. And we've seen, we, we now, kind of 10 years down the road, have seen so many people who are great preachers are so dry in their walk with the Lord, and what happens? They, they fall out of ministry. They have a moral failure, or they burn out, or there's just no hidden life with God. And so he kind of put my nose in that early on. Here, your prayer life before God, you fail here, you fail everywhere else. No man is greater than his 
prayer life. Okay, those would be the two main things he taught me. And I have here, I put him first on purpose because there's also a lot of bad things he taught me. Okay? Let's not exalt these men beyond the status of men. Okay? Raven Hill, to this day, has influences on me that I'm still trying to get rid of. I'm conscious of them. They're still so deep. I'm trying to undo them. Another thing that he's taught me is he taught me to be motivated by guilt. You haven't done enough for God. You haven't. You wake up at 5, you should have woke up at 4. You wake up at 4, you should have woke up at 3.30. You should have prayed through the night like me. If there's coldness in your life, it's because you're not trying hard enough. If your church is cold, it's because they're weak. He taught me the best way to get people to holiness is to rub their nose in their own failure, and that includes you, me. I wake up with that every morning, and I fight it every morning with the gospel because that is not the gospel. He taught me, just to say it as plain as possible, look at your own efforts, don't look at Jesus's. He, of course, would never say that. But that was the summary of kind of his influence. Incredibly good things. I love this man. I have affection for this man. He has sent me down some bad trails that the Lord has had to rein me in with the gospel. So I put him first to say, be discerning in this. I'll have that in our last section. Do this in conjunction with your pastors. Don't just go read any dead guy. There's some not great dead guys. I didn't have anybody to tell me, hey, just so you know, he's great, but he is Arminian. He will focus on your own efforts. He will not focus on a sovereign God out of sheer love and total grace saving you. He will not have assurance of faith or assurance of salvation. He will, again, point to your own efforts as keeping you saved in a very real sense. I didn't have any pastor to come alongside me and say, eat the meat, spit out the bones. And so I ingested a lot of the bones. Okay, so though I love Ravenhill very much, there is a lot of this. And this is true of every, every human being you will ever walk with, whether living or dead, some really, really good and some really, really bad. Okay, so that is Leonard Ravenhill. I'll just, I still to this day don't know if it was more good or more bad, genuinely. I mean, again, I have affection for this dead Brit. Uh, we will spend eternity together, but I don't know the sum of his influence on me. Is it more bad? Is the weight of guilt that I have to shake off often? Does that outweigh the wonders of in light, living in light of eternity, being a man of prayer? I, I genuinely don't know. So I don't recommend you go to Ravenhill and start there. I think he would teach you wonderful things. I think he would also point to your own efforts and, and point you away to, from the gospel in some profoundly dangerous ways. Okay, I love him. I think he's a believer. But that is the first. That is Leonard Ravenhill. So when you see me get passionate, that's the old British guy speaking through me. That's not true, but kind of. Okay, second guy, David Brainerd. David Brainerd. So David Brainerd was a missionary to the Native Americans in the early 1700s before uh, our great, wonderful rebellion against the Brits. Uh, and he ministered during the First Great Awakening. He was, in his day, not really a successful missionary. He lived in the day of the Wesley brothers, of George Whitfield, of Jonathan Edwards. They were far more successful, if you just think numbers of fruit from their preaching and things like that, than David Brainerd. He was a kind of no-name missionary around Delaware and New England, ministering to the Native Americans, often alone. I think the most he ever saw in his whole life was maybe around 90 to maybe 100 Native Americans come to know the Lord, which is still wonderful. I'm just saying, compared to Whitfield would preach to 7,000 and they would fall down and weep and ask what must we do to be saved. But he kept a diary uh, his whole life uh, that was just kind of his own diary, his own journal. It wasn't written for anybody throughout his whole short life. And near the end of his life, he had tuberculosis and he was dying of tuberculosis. He meets Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards took him into his house and kind of cared for him in his dying days. Edwards eventually found his diary and with Brainerd's permission, read it and was just blown away by this man's hidden life before the Father, by this man's secret devotion to God. I'll give, I'll give you an example here. Here is what he wrote after his conversion. July 12, 1739, this is Brainerd speaking. As I was walking in a dark, fit, thick grove, unspeakable glory seemed to open to view. 
an apprehension of my soul, a new, uh, a new inward aspiration or view that I had of God such as I had never had before nor anything had the least remembrance of, so that I stood still and wondered and admired. I had, no, I had now no particular apprehension of any one person of the Trinity, either the Father, the Son, or Holy Spirit, but it appeared to be divine glory and splendor that I beheld. And my soul rejoiced with joy unspeakable to see such a God with such, glo- such a glorious and divine being. I was inwardly pleased and satisfied that he should be God over all forever and ever. My soul was so captivated and delighted with the excellency, the loveliness, and the greatness and other perfections of God that I was swallowed up in him, at least to the degree that I had no thought or remembrance at first about my own salvation or scarce that there ever was such a creature as I. Thus the Lord, I trust, brought me to a hearty desire to exalt him, to set him on the throne, and to seek first his kingdom, principally and ultimately to aim at his honor and glory as the king and sovereign of the universe, which is the foundation of the religious religion of Jesus, I found myself in a new world. You know, just like our conversion experiences, right? A man who sat before the wondrous, glorious God entered into a new world and poured his life out so that Native Americans might know him. He died at 29 of tuberculosis, died very young, and again, Edwards, towards the end of his life, took the diary, read it, and then with Brainerd's permission, published it, and of all the works that Jonathan Edwards had ever published, his own, it was the most famous, is the most famous. It's never been out of print. It had an unbelievable impact on the church in his day. Uh, Some think that the, it, it, it is the greatest influence that caused the modern missions movement, William Carey going. Now, William Carey, Robert Murray, McShane, Robert Morrison, another missionary, David Livingston, another missionary, Andrew Murray, another missionary, Jim Elliott, even into the 50s, all read The Life and Diary of David Brainerd and considered it one of their greatest treasures. Many of them took it as the only book besides their Bible on their mission with them. John Wesley, who would have disagreed with a lot of Brainerd's theology, said to all of the Methodist ministers, let every preacher read carefully over the life of Brainerd. It had an immense impact all after this 29-year-old had died. This no-name that never experienced any of the fame dies, goes to be with the Lord, and the Lord takes his diary, his life's hidden work, and uses it to cause a profound impact. So I, I met him a couple years into being a Christian. I actually met him through Ravenhill. He had, a, he had a huge impact on Ravenhill. And so after hearing about this diary, I took it and bought it and read it and read it and read it and read it over and over and over Again, I think it's the book I've, I've read most. Uh, and Brainerd taught me, especially just as a, another young man in my 20s, back when I was reading, I'm barely into my 30s now, but uh, just first thing he taught me is just Matthew 6. Let your devotion be in secret before the Heavenly Father who sees in secret. Don't go out and pray in the streets and receive the cheap, fleeting reward of man. Go to your father who is in secret and seek the reward of your father. Again, this man was a no-name. He wasn't writing this to be published. One day I'll write these sweet prayers and then it'll be published and I'll be famous. Then he's just living a life in secret devotion to the Father over and over and over and again in, in his diary, you read things like, I spent the day in prayer. Or one story I have there where he was, he was with some friends and he got away to pray. And this is what he says, I continued wrestling with God in prayer for my dear little flock here, his, his uh, small church that he had started of, of Native Americans, and more especially for the Indians elsewhere as well as for the dear friends in one place or another, till it was bedtime and I feared that I should hinder the family. But oh, with what reluctancy did I find myself obliged to consume time in sleep. I'm praying and I want to keep praying and oh, how reluctant am I to go to bed when I want to keep on praying. That's the kind of man that he was writing that for himself in his diary. So he taught me that is... Your life, you live your life before your father who sees, and your father's reward is so much infinitely better than all the treasures of the world. 
all the praises, all the empty praise of man. Another thing he taught me is to have a deep, deep hunger for holiness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. He was consumed with this pursuit of holiness and to look more like Jesus. He even called this, this longing for holiness a pleasing pain. I have a quote there. When I really enjoy God, this is Brainerd speaking, I feel my desires for him the more insatiable and my thirstings after holiness the more unquenchable. Oh, for holiness. Oh, for more of God in my soul. Oh, this pleasing pain. It makes my soul press after God. Oh, that I might not loiter on my heavenly journey. Another quote, another entry to his diary. February 21st, 1776. My soul was refreshed and comforted that I could not but bless God who has enabled me in some good measure to be faithful this past day. Oh, how sweet it is to be spent and worn out for God. April 17th. Oh, I long to fill the remaining moments all for God. Though my body was so feeble and wearied with preaching and much private conversation, yes, I want, yet I wanted to sit up all night and do something for God. To God, the giver of these refreshments, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He longed to be more holy. He longed to have more of his sweet Savior in his life, even when he was worn out and tired with a type of tired you and I do not know. As he's in a little hut in the freezing winters, dying of tuberculosis, longing to stay up so that he might get more of his God. And the last thing he taught me is to look to God in the midst of suffering and in the midst of, in his case, incredible, constant suffering. He was dying of tuberculosis. He died at 29. He got tuberculosis probably around 21. He was constantly lonely. He's alone in the wilderness, riding a horse, going to find different Native American tribes to minister to. And worst of all, he had terrible depression, relentless depression. And yet, in the midst of all those things and no relief, no Advil, none of the things that uh, would just cure just a little bit of those sorts of Pains. In the midst of all of that, he keeps looking to God. Here's what he says towards the end of his life. is one of my favorite quotes from him. Such fatigues and hardships as these serve to wean me more from the earth, and I trust will make heaven the sweeter. Formerly, when I was exposed to cold and rain, etc., I was ready to please myself with the thought of enjoying a comfortable house, a warm fire, and other outward comforts. But now these have less place in my heart through the grace of God, and my eye is more to God for comfort. In this world, I expect tribulation, and it does not now, as formerly, appear strange to me. I don't in such seasons of difficulty flatter myself that it will be better hereafter, but rather think how much worse it might be and how much greater trials other of God's children have endured and how much greater yet are perhaps those reserved for me. Blessed be God that he is the comfort to me under my sharpest trials and scarce ever let these thoughts be attended with terror or melancholy, but they are attended frequently with great joy. That's what he learns through a life of just terrible suffering. Terrible suffering. He learns, my comfort is not a warm house that might relieve this cold or medicine that might relieve this disease. My comfort. The Lord has taught me to lift my eyes to him. He is my sweet comfort in the sharpest trials. And so though I have not endured 1% of what he endured every single day, he taught me that's where your eyes go. Don't look at the light at the end of the tunnel, although you can pray for it. Look primarily to your God who is with you in the valley of the shadow of death. That's David Brainerd. Next, Athanasius. Uh, I will go through him a little bit quicker, and I'll, I'll be a bit more summative. Athanasius is, has anybody heard of Athanasius other than from me? Okay, so we just, just so you guys know, as, as people who are Reformed, we know the Reformers, we know the Puritans, and then once you get past the Reformation, it's like, uh, maybe Anselm and Augustine, right? We'll pick up a couple guys from those 1,500 years of church history. So Athanasius is my biggest theological influence. In fact, I think if you plucked away any of these guys, if you plucked away Athanasius, you would see the biggest difference in me, just because, quite frankly, uh, through 
spending time with Athanasius, he changed how I viewed God and how I viewed salvation. One, God went from being just abstract, you know, just kind of the floating deity up there to the personal father who's been eternally pouring out his love on the the person of the son through the person of the spirit. God went from being abstract to being personal. And all of a sudden, every truth that I believed went from being truth that I believed to being precious truths that I hold so dear. Because it's not just an abstract bullet point of, I'm a Christian, so I believe this, but it's connected to my wonderful God who sees me and knows me. And salvation went from being a what? Justification by faith alone, right? I, I, I should have eternity in hell, but because of the payment for me, I won't. True things, but again, a bullet point and can be a bit abstract, right? Where's your comfort? I'm justified. Just reminding myself of a doctrinal truth. Salvation went from being a what to a who, How am I justified? Athanasius would say, if you said, Jesus came to save sinners, my sins are forgiven, he would say, great, so what? Well, I'm not going to go to hell. Well, great, Uh, so what? You know, hell's bad. I know, yeah, yeah, but all you've told me up to this point is what you're saved from. You haven't begun speaking about what you're saved for. You haven't begin to get to the infinite riches that Paul is praying the Ephesians' eyes are open to in Ephesians 1. You haven't begun to get to the eternal love of the Father that has been pouring out on his Son that Jesus says in John 17, Father, I pray that they would know you as I know you and that the love that you have poured out on me from before the foundation of the world might be in them, that you love them even as you have loved me. And Athanasius would say, as he's fighting the battle of the Trinity, I'm not just talking about abstract doctrine. I'm talking about who your God is, your wonderful, loving Father who sent your glorious, infinite, eternal Son. The eternal Son of God by nature came and died so that you can become sons and daughters of God by grace, that you might be brought into the life that is God. So he fought the battle of the Trinity, but they, if, you, if, you, if you read actually the, the theological history of the Trinity, you won't find one sniff of how we talk about the Trinity. One God, three persons, each person fully, equally God. Stop talking so we don't become heretics. That's how we treat the Trinity. And I had a professor who said, that's great. Notice you have not said one thing about God. You've done a divine math problem, and then you said, let's move on. But oh my goodness, if you read Athanasius, the guys who are actually fighting against Arius, the one who showed up and said, Jesus is not eternally God like the Father. There was once when he was not. The Arian heresy that swept across the ancient world. And there was a time where every Orthodox bishop was exiled and it was Athanasius against heretics. Athanasius against the world, it was said. And he fought and was exiled five times himself, fighting for the truth that our glorious Savior is eternally God, and if he's not, our whole salvation falls apart. I'm not just talking about right truth. If he's not God, God has not saved us. We have not been brought into the life of God, and everything that we hold dear falls apart. And he points to the Gospels, and he points to John 3.16, and he points to all the wonders of our Father, has eternally loved his son, and he created out of abundance of that love. What profit would there be for us, the created, if we didn't know our own maker? We weren't just made to serve him. We were made to know him, live in communion with him, and salvation is being brought back into that life we lost when we were kicked out of the garden. That's Athanasius. Now, he's, again, the most doctrinal. He's also the hardest I've had to work. It's hard to read old dead guys, especially ones that are from 1,600 years ago, right? But all the wonders of God that he showed me and all the wonders of salvation and adoption. Adoption goes from being a state, a paperwork that God fills out to what Jesus says to Mary in John 20. I'm going to see my father and your father. Or Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Why? That we might be adopted as sons, that we cry out, Abba, Father, when the Son, the eternal Son comes 
And you are, as Paul says, united to him. You're in Christ, Paul's favorite phrase. All that is his is now yours. His righteousness is now yours, and his Father is now yours. And as the Father looks on his eternal Son and said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, so the Father now looks on you who are united to his Son and says, this is my beloved Son, this is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. Athanasius taught me that. Okay. I just summarized a very, very complex controversy for the sake of time. But that's what he did. Again, that's a lot of hard work, but I will never be the same as a result of spending time with this man who just, quite frankly, showed me my God. I have a quote there for you at the end. Talking about Jesus, this is the end of his, uh, probably the most well-known of his books called On the Incarnation. He manifested himself through a body that we might receive the idea of the invisible father, and he endured the insults of human beings that we might inherit incorruptibility. In short, the achievements of the Savior affected by his incarnation are such a kind and number that if anyone should wish to expound on, expound on them, it would be like those who gaze at the expanse of the sea and wish to count its waves. Therefore, it is better not to seek to speak of the whole, of which one can uh, cannot even speak of a part, but rather to recall one thing and leave the whole to be marveled at. For all are equally marvelous, and wherever one looks, seeking the divinity of the word, one is struck with exceeding awe. What Arius, what the heretics do, is they look at the infinite marvel and mystery of God and say, I want to understand this, so I'm going to do what every heretic does, which is minimize the mystery. There's things that my human brain can't comprehend, so I'll call it wrong and give a different explanation. Athanasius says, don't do that. You have an infinitely wondrous God who has revealed himself. See what he's revealed. And where your faith slams into the wall of faith-seeking understanding, I don't understand because God is infinite. His ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Stand in worshipful awe and say, my Lord and my God, what is man that you are mindful of him? So that is Athanasius, again, probably the biggest theological formation. Again, I, I, I picked these guys because they're lesser known and because they're forming in different ways, just to kind of show you. You can read Lewis and Tolkien and a lot of people that are going to form you in the same way, and that's great, but there's a breadth here, okay? So let's look at this last guy, and then we'll uh, talk about how can we actually do this. Very simple. Last guy, I don't know if you've ever heard of him or heard me mention him. He's an old Scottish pastor named Robert Murray McShane. Uh, many of you know my great affections for him. Uh, if you were to say to me, you can keep one person from all of church history, it would be him, and it wouldn't be close. Uh, not because he's taught me the most important things, uh, or anything like that. There's just a preciousness uh, that he has in my heart because of what he's shown me about Jesus. So he was similar to Brainerd. He, there's nothing really outstanding about his life. He's a Scottish pastor, a normal Scottish pastor, who spent a couple years uh, going to Israel as a, as a missionary. Actually, why he, while he was gone, another guy came and filled his pulpit, and revival broke out in his church from the other guys preaching. Uh, and then he came back and he died uh, again at 29, similar to uh, Brainerd of typhus fever. And also, so, so nothing spectacular about his life. And then also similar to Brainerd, he just had this incredible closeness with the Lord in his short life that just made people kind of stand in awe. In fact, we have quotes. I've got some quotes there. There's not, he wasn't a great preacher. He wasn't known for being a great preacher, nothing like Spurgeon or anything like that. It wasn't he wowed people with his sermons. He wasn't known for being a great writer. He, he wanted to be a poet. He wasn't known for his poetry or anything like that. Rather, he was just known as a guy that when people were around him, they just said, it seems like he's just like Moses, come down from the mountain and his face is shining. It seemed like he just left Jesus in that next room. A couple quotes here. I'll skip that first one. Uh, Andrew Bonar was one of his closest friends. He actually wrote uh, the memoirs of McShane. That is the main work, taking some of his diaries. Isabella Dickinson was uh, someone who heard his preaching when she was not a believer, and here's what she said. There was something singularly attractive about Mr. McShane's holiness. It was not his matter nor his manner either that struck me. It was just the living epistle of Christ, a picture so lovely, I felt I would have given all the world to be as he was, but knew 
All the time I was dead in sin. Another person who heard his preaching, an anonymous quote, someone who was just sitting as he was preaching, what a joy it was to come under the quickening and refreshing influence of a living creature, a true man of God whose face, like the face of Moses, shines as if fresh from the holy mount. And I would echo that. I've read his sermons. They're good. Uh, Good, not great. I've read his poetry. I'm not a good judge of poetry. Uh, but there's just something about reading him and how he speaks that you just feel like you're with Jesus' close friend. You're with the disciple with whom Jesus loved, and there's just this sort of radiating love for Jesus that just comes out of him that is just very attractive. So uh, I, I, I met him most recent of any of these people. I've, I met him Two and a half years ago, I've, I've heard him quoted, knew that he was solid, but uh, just kind of randomly took uh, his memoirs, bought and read his memoirs uh, two and a half years ago. And his impact on me has been, I, it would be difficult to describe genu- genuinely. Uh, I did not cry in sermons. I've, I've always been wired emotionally, but I did not weep as you have seen me weep before I met McShane. You can go back and listen to sermons from three years ago pre-McShane Jared, uh, and they will be bad, and there will be no tears, right? And so he is uh, one who has all, all that you see of that, those tears is because he's just taken me by the hand and walked me close to my beautiful Savior. And in the same, Lewis, C.S. Lewis influence on me showed me just kind of the depth of beauty and, and McShane, if I were to say it, he, he showed me the one from whom all the beauty comes. And so it is difficult for me to think about Jesus and, and not get teary-eyed because there's just a depth of preciousness that McShane has taken me by the hand and shown me. Uh, when <laughs> the, uh, Claudia, a couple of years ago, when I was first reading his biography, she just noticed I was being more patient with the kids. Uh, and we were talking about it, and she's like, yeah, you've been a bit more patient than usual. I was like, yeah, I feel more patient. She said, I think it's because of your new friend. Uh, and I think she was right. There was just something about reading McShane that this gave me a more beautiful picture of Jesus. It's like the stained glass window began to, to brighten of his loveliness that was just having its effect in other areas. So that's, that's his impact on me. So I have here, he taught me, the beauty of Jesus is the first thing I have. He taught me the beauty of Jesus. I've got a bunch of quotes. I don't know if we'll be able to read them all, but here's one from McShane. If Jesus reveals himself to you in all, his, in all the glory of his person, the completeness of his work, and the freeness of his love, you too will be filled with appropriating joyful faith and cry, my Lord and my God. When Jesus unveils his matchless beauty, and gives you a sweet glimpse of his matchless face that was buffeted and spit upon. Then the soul joyfully clings to him. This is believing. This is joy and peace in believing. The truest and purest joy flows from a discovery of Jesus Christ. He is the hidden treasure that gives such joy to the finder. Do you think you have found that treasure? Touching question, for if not, you are poor indeed. For how much joy may you have in Christ, the God of hope, fill you with all joy. You need not be afraid to take the full joy that Jesus gives. If you really come unto Christ, you come unto the, lo- the love of Jehovah and all that is filling love. And that is filling love. The love of creatures does not fill the heart, but God's love coming full upon the soul gives fullness of joy. It is a holy love a sovereign love. Another quote he said to his people in a sermon, unfathomable oceans of grace are in Christ for you. Dive and dive again, and you will never come to the bottom of these depths. How many millions of dazzling pearls and gems are at this moment hidden in the deep recesses of ocean caves, but there are unsearchable riches in Christ. Seek after them. You see what I mean? He's just drawing you closer and closer to his precious, precious Savior and showing his great loveliness. And that's the next thing I have there is he taught me just the richness of fellowship with Jesus. Abide in me went from being a command that I often feel I'm failing at to the most wonderful invitation I've ever heard. 
Abide in me and I in you. McShane loved who he called his precious Rose of Sharon, a journal entry. Rose early to seek God and found him whom my soul loveth. Who would not rise early to meet such company? That's how he viewed his wonderful Savior. He said to his people in a sermon, Set not your heart on the flowers of this world, for they all have a canker in them. Prize the rose of Sharon, Jesus, more than all, for he changeth not. Live nearer to Christ than to the saints, so that when they are taken from you, you may have him and lean on him still. He wrote in a letter to a friend, I preached at Wallace Town tonight. May the master be there. Oh, he is a sweet master. One smile from Jesus sustains my soul amidst all the storms and frowns of this passing world. Pray to know Jesus better. Have no other righteousness, no other strength but Jesus. Soon we shall see him coming in the clouds of heaven. So he just was consumed with this precious love for his Savior, and himself wanted to get closer to him. He wrote to a friend, never see the face of man before you have seen his face, who is our life, our all. And he beckoned his people and beckoned his friends to come closer to this rich, precious Savior. And I felt as I read him, he was beckoning me as well. And final thing he taught me that just kind of falls right in line with this is just to see all of the Christian life as flowing from this sweet fellowship with your Savior. Has, all of the Christian life is flowing from this abiding. He would say, if you want to kill sin, you want the desires of, of sin to dim, then let the bright, wonderful desires of your infinite God shine in your heart more. Yes, attack the sin. Yes, focus on the sin. What are strategies? Do that. But the main thing is to become in awe of the wonders of your God. Here's the, skip down to that quote, learn much of the Lord Jesus. This is a quote I have hanging in my office next to the portrait of him you guys gave me. If you go into my office, it looks a little bit like a shrine, but not many people go in there. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace, all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, See, feel his all-seeing eye settle on you in love and rest in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with the heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Jesus Christ and all that is in him, and let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart so there will be no more room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. You see that? What's the answer? to killing sin? What's the answer to being motivated towards missions or evangelism? What's the answer to loving one another? Bask in the beams of your wonderful God. Let the infinite, glorious stream of the Father's love pour into your heart, and it will overflow. It will. That's why we have delight first of these three, because delight pours into the others. You want to display his love to one another, go delight in him, and you will naturally, as you love God, you'll love one another. You want to herald, you want to declare him to the world, go delight in him, and he will become too wonderful to keep silent about. Delight is the ultimate motivator with McShane. You see how he, he fights Ravenhill a little bit here. Your motivator to obedience isn't guilt, it's delight in your precious Savior. Okay, so that's McShane. So just to summarize, the, the glory of prayer, living in light of eternity, a hidden life before the Heavenly Father who sees, looking to your God in the midst of suffering, the beauties and preciousness of Jesus, seeing God as personal, seeing salvation as being brought into the very life of God and wonderful fellowship with God, all these things that I hold precious all came from men who have long passed yet their works and their words remain, okay? So do this. Hang out with old dead guys and old dead ladies who love 
your sweet Savior and are waiting with their treasure chest open to say, come, mine the treasures that I have discovered. Okay, do this and keep doing it. I'm hanging out right now with John Newton and John Owen. There's a lot of Johns, by the way, in church history. So you start with a John, and that's a good place to start. Newton's teaching me how to, to minister out of the grace that I've received. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He's teaching me that. And John Owen is teaching me how to behold the glories of Christ in all that I do. So I'm still learning from these men. Okay, so how do we do this? How do we do this as we wrap it up? It's pretty simple. I've got here a pretty simple list for you. I would, you start by identifying dead people you want to hang out with, right? Identify men and women of church history to spend time with. Again, a lot of this will be difficult work. So picking someone uh, is, is probably, you don't just close your eyes. Again, there's a lot to pick from. There's, again, similar to Ravenhill, there's, there's some landmines you, you might need to dodge. So do this in conjunction with your pastors. Ask, email me, email Lee. Who is a, who's a good person to start with? Which John do I start with, right? So identify someone. A, a good way to do that is identifying in your own heart what are areas I want to grow in. If I want to grow, if I just feel I've got such a cold, not bitter, but cold heart towards the lost, I just don't think about them often. I feel like I think about Jesus and I love Jesus and I love studying the Bible. I just don't think about the lost often. You, you probably, I mean, C.S. Lewis would be good, I guess, but probably someone like William Carey or Adoniram Judson or John Patton would be better because they're going to just stir that passion. So, so think of your own heart. What are areas that I want to grow or what are areas I just feel the Lord stirring? Uh, and that might be a helpful way to identify who you want to go spend time with. Next thing I have there, count the cost. Uh, it is not all wonderful quotes. You don't pick up a big, thick biography and like every page is just going to be mountaintop experiences of the best quotes I've ever heard, right? Some of their lives are boring. It's a little boring to study theological controversies sometimes. Again, it is a little bit like, uh, you know, working out, I guess. Like the result is great, but the, the journey is difficult. And so there's a lot of people, they'll hear me talk about Brainerd, they'll go buy his diary, and they won't make it through the first 50 pages because he's not a Christian and he's dying of depression and it's some of the most depressed writing ever. And they're like, why did you recommend this? Right? So you got to count the, count the cost uh, and not exalt these guys too high. You, you will disagree with them. I have their be discerning. Uh, you will disagree with them, or rather, they will disagree with you. There is no person in church history that agrees with me fully, I don't think. Uh, Lewis and I would disagree on tons of things. Athanasius would be baffled by some of the things that we believe. McShane would disagree with me on tons of stuff. Right? You, you have to think, one, knowing their times and their context, uh, the debates that we debate, Athanasius has no clue that that even exists because he's in, ministering in the 4th and 3rd century. So be discerning and uh, kind of know, okay, I'm going to have to wrestle, eat the meat, spit out the bones, learn how to glean good things from men that I disagree with in certain areas. And by the way, that is going to equip you for our day where we don't know how to fight charitably we don't know how to disagree charitably at all. We draw hard lines between my tribe and your tribe, and we just kind of, you know, demonize one another or, or you know, they've gone woke or they've gone alt-right. That's just what we do. We're just so bad at this. And so hang out with old guys uh, who you're going to disagree with, but then also you're going to be taught wonderful things. We'll just teach you how to charitably disagree as well. So be discerning. And then once you've picked someone... Just kind of think about like a, a puzzle piece, if you will. Learn about their life. Get an overview of their life. Get a good biography. Learn about their times, right? Things are going to be normal in their day that are the worst thing that could have possibly happened in our day. Or things that we think are totally fine that they, like McShane, goes to, he travels to Paris and sees that they're not keeping the Sabbath on Sunday, and he's like furious and like, uh-oh. We don't keep the Sabbath like he does, uh, like, because he has a different theological framework on the Lord's day than us, right? So there's just going to, you need to learn their times lest you be baffled by some of the things. Again, Athanasius Augustine living in the Roman Empire. Right? So just learn their times, get an overview of their life, and then zoom in a little bit and try to find firsthand works. Uh, probably the best place to start would be letters, if they have written letters and those have been captured, or a, a memoir that, that does have some of their diaries or something like that. And then if you want to get a bit more into someone like Jonathan Edwards or, or John Owen or any of the Puritans, finding their, their works. 
uh, that they're, they're writing, religious affections or, or things like that, but read them, right? Not people talking about them, but them speaking. So you kind of zoom in closer and closer and then just kind of see what are their areas of expertise. What are, they, what, what are the ways that the Lord has molded them to minister? Again, don't go to C.S. Lewis for theological precision. He will not give it to you. He will make you a bad theologian. Go to R.C. Sproul for, you know, theological precision in a lot of areas, right? Different, different strengths. And then don't go to R.C. Sproul if you want just your imagination baptized in wonder. Go to Lewis for that. Go to Tolkien for that, right? Okay, so see what they're good at and then go to them for that. Again, if you want to love others, go to Francis Schaeffer. He's really, really good at that. If you want to think about God, go to Athanasius. And then just let them mold you. Again, not in a blind, non-discerning way, but let them challenge you, let them strengthen you, and let them point you to Jesus. Again, don't forget, all of these men are just good arrows. That's their value. Their primary value is making you look more like Jesus, not more like them. And as you read, see Jesus in them. Let them mold you to look more like Jesus. They, let them say to you, as Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And as you get discouraged and think, I'm not as awesome as them. They wrote these awesome books that have lasted forever. Remember this quote from McShane. McShane was reading Jonathan Edwards, who was before him, and was very discouraged because Jonathan Edwards was so great, and he thought, I'm just this random Scottish minister. And this is what he said. Read part of the life of Jonathan Edwards. How feeble does my spark of Christianity appear besides such a sun? But even his was a borrowed light and the same source is still open to enlighten me. Every one of these great men are great for one reason, grace from your Savior who has his eyes fixed on you. Even Edward's great light is a borrowed light, and the same source is open to enlighten you. Don't let these men become varsity in your mind to your JV and let it lead you to discouragement. Rather, flip that. These men are only as good as the Lord has ministered to them grace, and the Lord ministers you grace as well, okay? So there you go. Let me pray. We are one minute over. I knew this. Like, let me talk about McShane. We will go over guaranteed. Let's do, do we have a question? Okay. Let me pray. We'll give out one book and then one question, and we'll just have a shorter coffee mingle time before the gathering. Is that cool? Even if you say no, it's, we're doing it. Okay. Father, we love you. We thank you again that we can... Uh, learn from men, not just learn good, random truths, but learn about you, Lord, that we live in this day where we have so many treasures open to us. I pray that we would mine them and look more like your son and bring you more glory as a result. Pray in your son's name. Amen.